A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. In this episode, we're going back to the Great American Jewish City series, and this time we're going to cover Detroit. And this episode has been anonymously, uh, generously sponsored in memory of Rabbi Avram Abba Friedman, Rabbi Shalom Goldstein, and Rabbi Boxt for all they did for the community of Detroit and for our family. May the community continue to thrive and be a merit for their neshamas. And uh, those, in fact, are three tremendous uh, um, educators, rabbis, um, influential people who had such a major impact on the Detroit uh, Jewish community. So hopefully we'll get to speak about them. Um, just uh, quickly, a couple of things. I'm getting like endless feedback about, um, it keeps, doesn't end, about, uh, about the Rabbeinu Tam and the times of, uh, of, of, of uh, all that. About 35 minutes, 72 minutes, and then people started telling me that it really depends on the sun's 8.5 degrees past the horizon. And as soon as I realized that it not only involves halacha, which I don't know very well, it also involves math, which I don't know at all, I see that we've distanced ourselves from the subject of Jewish history, and I'd like to move on. So I appreciate everyone's clarifications, some of which I even understood. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot to say on the topic, but since we're going to focus on Jewish history, we're going to move on from that. In the last episode on Jacob Robinson, I also um, mentioned the famous court case that he uh, ran, the, the Bernheim case of Upper Schlesia. And some very knowledgeable and dedicated listener, very, very uh, respected listener, uh, corrected me that in the English language, it's that area, that district of Germany and Poland is referred to as Silesia. Um, the reason I said Schlesia is because that's how it's pronounced in Hebrew, which I had assumed that that's just the way to pronounce it. I didn't realize there's a distinction between Hebrew and English. So I decided to check it out, actually, and I found out that in German, uh, it's pronounced, pronounced as Schlesian. Um, so the Hebrew, Schlesia, is much more similar to the German, the original, Schlesian, than the English, Silesia, which I don't know what it sounds like, but definitely sounds inaccurate, so I'm going to not 
acknowledge the English pronunciation. I'm going to stick with the Hebrew slash German, uh, uh, more accurate uh, pronunciation of that area. In Polish, it's an entirely different word. In general, there's always a question about how to pronounce places in a native language or the spoken language. The golden rule is depends on how famous it is, right? In Warsaw, I'm not going to pronounce it. Warszawo in Polish and, you know, in other places like that. Um, so it depends how famous the place is, and uh, otherwise I try to uh, uh, do it as accurate in, as in the native languages also, and and because Silesia sounds like it's in the Midwest, not in Germany. Um, I want to thank, and speaking about Detroit, speaking about the Midwest, we're going to head towards Detroit, and, um, and I want to thank uh, several uh, listeners, producers and others who contributed to the research for this episode. Uh, There's a ton of information on Detroit. There's definitely going to need to be more than one episode here. Um, We have probably two, maybe even three. So all those lovers of Detroit Jewish history out there, please be in touch with me if you'd like to sponsor part two and part three of the Jewish history of Detroit. This, for now, is going to be part one. And I want to thank all those who assisted with the research for this episode. We'll be sending cassette tapes to Detroit in the mail, which will arrive in a few weeks for all the natives who would like to hear the episode and, and uh, you know, are, are, would prefer that method of hearing it over the uh, podcast. Um, it's, it's Detroit, the Jewish community of Detroit is known and, and famous for its seven-layer cake. And I allegedly, even the first kosher Slurpees and the first kosher Dunkin' Donuts were there. I have to check that. I don't know if that's true. Um, but, so there's definitely important places that it has in Jewish history. But in general, the background of Detroit is as famous as the, um, the motor industry and many of the immigrant Jews who arrived at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries they take part in the booming, uh, what becomes the booming uh, uh, center in the United States for the auto industry. Of course, Henry Ford is there, and GM, and all the other factories. It's also the greater Detroit area, and the, when we talk about the Jewish community of Detroit, we're not talking about specifically in the city itself, although for many years it was in the city itself, but of course it moves to the suburbs post-war and in general, we're talking about the greater Detroit area. In fact, there's a greater Michigan area. Forget about Detroit area. The greater Michigan area. There's a fascinating story of Jewish farming. Um, at the end of the 19th century, there was a different attempts to settle um, uh, Jews in Michigan um, to, to farm. Um, the f- first farming settlement in the state of Michigan was in 1882. There was a a Jewish banker in Chicago, Lazarus Silberman, who tried to settle uh, Jews there. There were Jewish farming communities, and there were many attempts to create Jewish farming communities all in, through all the waves of immigration uh, during the Great Immigration, the 18, late 1800s and early 1900s, which is a fascinating story. Perhaps we'll have an opportunity to devote an entire episode to it. It was, it was uh, in Argentina, the... the the Baron Hirsch uh, colonies, and and uh, later on in the United States as well, and in the Midwest, in the South, and later on in New Jersey, and actually the I don't even know if, I don't even know if we could call it a wave of immigration, but um, in uh, post post war, 
post uh, post Holocaust. There were survivors and refugees who ended up in New Jersey farming towns in uh, in different in egg farming primarily, but also in in, in other farming. Um, excuse me. So there were there was Jewish the story of Jewish farming in the United States and also in Russia, in southern Russia, and the Crimea and Ukraine. In fact, uh, during the 1920s and 30s, we can probably say that there is. There was for sure more Jewish farmers in the Soviet Union than there were in Palestine. Um, and there might have even been more Jewish farmers in the United States than in Palestine, whereas the place where Jewish farmers were known for it was in Palestine. So it's a bit ironic uh, in, that, uh, in that regard. So getting back to Michigan, this uh, it was known as, as, the, as the, the small little colony in Emmett County. It lasted only a few years. Uh, but other farming settlements in Michigan started to rise up. In 1891, there's a, another attempt, a fellow by the name of Hyman Levenberg. Uh, he launches a Jewish farming colony also in Michigan, in a place called Bad Axe. And uh, they, several real estate investors and bankers, they tr- sold the land and, 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 uh, and they had to you know, pay it back to Jewish purchasers. And, and they, uh, they, 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 people who had been peddlers and small-time merchants now decided to become farmers with their inexperience in farming, um, which ultimately led it to its demise and its failure, but they shared a vision of uh, creating a paradise, a farming paradise in the their new home, in the home of the free, the land of the free, and the home of the brave, and they called the, pal- the colony Palestine. So you had Palestine in Michigan. Uh, so they tried to Build the farm. It did not work out. Uh, some some of them left. Eventually, they 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 get a, a new lease on life from another merchant named Martin Butzel, and uh, and they a, a, along with another fellow, Emanuel Wodik, uh, and they tried to again pour in funding and investment and to manage it and to give them training of how to be farmers. Um, and all these efforts uh, did not really pay off the dividends. And several years later, the um, the small, tiny settlement was abandoned. The experiment was abandoned, and that was the end of uh, the farming settlement of Palestine in Michigan. But if we go back to Detroit, I want to focus uh, instead of going through chronologically through the development because there was Jews who lived in Detroit almost from colonial times, throughout the 1800s, and following a similar trend of American Jewish history that we've seen in many of the cities on the Great American Jewish Cities series of Jewish history soundbites, of the German-Jewish immigration in the mid-1800s, followed by the great uh, Eastern European Jewish immigration of the late 1800s and early 1900s, the establishment of synagogues and cemeteries and rabbis uh, being hired, cantors being hired, and uh, and then eventually uh, Jewish educational institutions being established. That is very familiar, and the same, a very similar trend took place in a general sense in Detroit as well. So instead of uh, going through that chronologically, I would like to instead focus on several specific institutions and events and anecdotes and especially personalities who shaped uh, the Jewish community uh, in Detroit in the first half of the 20th century and in not going in any particular uh, chronological sequence. And uh, one of those uh, which comes to mind, just because, you know, since I'm fascinated even more uh, with uh, Eastern European Jewish history, so 
this is a, a fascinating connection, was the Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin of Detroit. A very uh, interesting experiment, which was somewhat short-lived, but uh, it existed for several years. And there was a fellow by the name, a student of Rabbi Meir Shapiro of, of Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin in Lublin, um, a fellow by the name of Rabbi Meisher Rothenberg, who arrived uh, after escaping from war-torn Poland, and he establishes a Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin in Detroit in the early 1940s. And uh, this was supposed to be the, the, the new yeshiva, the uh, new, uh, and, and build on the ashes of Yeshiva's Chachmei which was, of course, decimated uh, during the war. Uh, almost all the students, except for a small contingent, which had escaped to Shanghai, but the uh, faculty and the students of the Yeshiva's Chachmei in Poland were almost entirely wiped out. And here, he's going to have it rebuilt and and uh, locals in Detroit, Mr. and Mrs. Sam and Leah Bookstein, they provided funding to help purchase a building, and he has his own building, and then he starts to hire a BAM, Reverend Mordechai Hirschberg, and the one of the, the main rabbi in Detroit at the time, who I'm going to get to hopefully if we have time, Reb Lazer Levine, also delivered uh, Shiurim there, Reb Mordechai Yafi was a rabbi there, and then the uh, famed Slabotka Ilui, Reb Eliezer Finkel, was a rabbi there, Blazer Finkel, who was um, who was a student of the Eitz Chaim and later Chevron Yeshiva, Slabatka Chevron Yeshiva in, in in Israel. He arrived in the United States following World War II, and he becomes a rabbi at Yeshiva's Chachmi Lublin. He also taught at the Hebrew Theological College in in uh, in Chicago, and then he had a rabbinical career, very long rabbinical career in in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in Columbus, Ohio, and in, in Brooklyn. <coughs> His son uh, um, was a, a prominent rabbi and academic, Rabbi Dr. Usher uh, Finkel, who, who, was, who, was, uh, who had a relationship with his cousin, who later on was the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, Rabbi Nassim Tzvi Finkel. He even gave him a bar mitzvah gift <coughs> of, of a Rambam and wished upon him that he would study the Rambam and, and, uh, and be inspired. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. By his teachings, they have an interesting uh, foreshadowing of future uh, career of Reb Nassensvi Finkel, the Rashiva of the Mir, there with this cousin, Rabbi Dr. Usher Finkel, the son of Rabbi Eliezer Finkel, the Slabatka Ilui, who's, like I said, a Rebbe in, in the Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin of Detroit. It's interesting that um, this Chachmei Lublin Detroit had the distinction of hosting the first ever Siam Hashas in the United States, or at least. The public one. I don't know if it was the first one. There might have been smaller ones by the first and second Siyam Hashas. But 1945 was the third Siyam Hashas of the Dafyaimi. And uh, Dafyaimi cycle, finishing the entire uh, Shas, Dafyaimi cycle of Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin, right? Of Rameir Shapiro, his vision. The first two uh, Siyumim had taken place in Rameir Shapiro's Yeshiva. The first one even with him being alive and present. Um, and then the second one again in his Yeshiva. And now the third was also in Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin, but it was in Detroit, um, on the other side of the world. And Reb Lazer Silver, who was the honorary chairman of the Yeshiva, among the many other positions that he held in American Orthodoxy. So he was uh, he, sp- he, he spoke at this uh, occasion of the Third Sea Mashas, and you have to keep in mind that the Third Sea Mashas was almost non-existent, because almost all those who had commenced their study of the Dafyaimi had recently been killed in the Holocaust. So the fact that there even was a Siam Hashas in 1945 in Detroit is nothing short of miraculous. Um, the um, 
in, in fact, Romer Shapiro himself had visited Detroit uh, on his fundraising tour in 1926 when he arrived in the United States. So, you know, he was there way before there would be yeshiva uh, that, that, uh, that, you know, had his, his yeshiva's name. The yeshiva, um, at its peak, had 100 students, uh, more than 100 students, and it thrived uh, through the mid-1950s, and then it kind of fell apart. So it lasted for only a little over more than a decade but it definitely was part of the Torah life. Once we mentioned the Finkels, so, and I mentioned the, the Rosh Hashiva of Nassim Si Finkels, so his, his parents lived for a short time in Detroit, and they had the distinction of having Detroit's first kosher restaurants. There's a historical, um, and that was the, through the initiative also of Reblazer Levine, the legendary rabbi of, um, of uh, the Detroit Jewish community, who I'll get to in a minute. And um, and he felt that all the Jews working in the motor industry, in the auto industry, automobile industry, and other and the other uh, other other parts of the Detroit economy, they could benefit from a kosher restaurant that would be around. So for a short time, the uh, Elia Mayor Finkel and his wife, may she live and be well, Sarah Finkel, um, they ran this uh, first kosher restaurant. Um, so before they moved to Chicago, which they're more famous for. Um, it, one, one can only wonder if in this kosher restaurant, uh, if there was another Finkel living in Detroit at the time, who was a son of the Alter Slabatka, who left his father's family, to say the least, and, uh, and uh, went off on his own way and immigrated to the United States. One wonders if he ever visited this restaurant, his cousin's, um, and uh, and see if they had any relationship. Who knows? So you have all these different Finkel cousins running around. Uh, I wonder if any of our listeners uh, know uh, more about this uh, this other Finkel, this Ru- Ruby Finkel, uh, who lived in Detroit at the time. There was an early uh, there was Hasidic. Yeshivas uh, Chachmei Lublin, of course, in Poland was Hasidic. I don't think that the Yeshivas Chachmei Lublin in Detroit was Hasidic, but there were Hasidic rabbis who were part of the early history in Detroit as well. There was, I mentioned, I had way back a, a uh, episode about uh, the Karlin Stalin Hasidic dynasty in the United States. So one of them is known as the Detroit Rebbe, who did not live in Detroit. Rabbi Yaakov Chaim Perlau, he lived in Williamsburg. But he was a prominent Hasidic Rebbe, a pioneer Hasidic Rebbe in the United States. He was a son of the Yanuka of Stalin, the Israel Pearl of Stalin. And he passed away in Detroit in 1946 while visiting his followers there. And there, thereby he gets the distinction of becoming the Detroit uh, Stalin Rebbe. His gravesite is still a popular visit in the town. And I discussed him more in the Stalin episode. But there was another Rebbe, sort of a Rebbe, a Hasidic rabbi from a dynasty who lived in Detroit for many, many years, and he was the Detroit Brezhner rabbi, so related to the Schatz dynasty, an old, old uh, Hasidic, small but uh, Hasidic dynasty from the Magad of Mizrich, student of the Magad of Mizrich, and um, his name was Rabbi Yosef Bensian Rabinovich, and he was a cousin of the Brezhner rabbis back in, in, um, in Europe, and he arrives in the United States in the 1920s, he starts out in Baltimore, and very quickly, since there was a Brezhner, kind of like a Brezhner Stiebel, or people who had lived in the Brezhner area, they they had settled in Detroit, and uh, they decided that since the scion of the dynasty was around, they're going to invite him to Detroit and have him become their rabbi there. And he remains the rabbi of this um, of this uh, the Detroit 
shul, this Detroit community, Beis Shmuel, for four decades, uh, through the 1960s. And uh, they, and at one point, when they built the new building, the, the, the synagogue had 700 seats, uh, it was 400 families that were members of a library of nearly 3,000 volumes, a modern mikvah, a social hall. This is in, in the 1940s and 50s in Detroit, so it was a very prominent shul. And uh, in the Dexter neighborhood, which is the Dexter neighborhood, was basically the Lower East Side of Detroit. It was the main Jewish neighborhood for many years until the decline of the neighborhood and the move to the suburbs, which was, again, quite common and quite a concurrent theme throughout many of our uh, cities that we're profiling in this series. Um, but the Dexter neighborhood was the center of Jewish life for, for so many years, and this shul was there until it kind of fell apart in the 1960s. And uh, Rabbi Rabinowitz uh, immigrated to the state of Israel when they sold the assets of the shul. He received per- permission from the board to take those assets and use it to build a new base, Shmuel Shul, in Givatayim, right near Tel Aviv, uh, which he did so in 1967 when he moved to Israel. And unfortunately, he passed away uh, several months later. Um, but uh, that was the that's the continuation of that uh, Detroit um, Detroit shul, so that you have another uh, another one. Um, like I said, the, one of the prominent rabbis of Detroit at that time was uh, the the most prominent rabbi during this time for many many years for half a century was Reb Lazer Levine. Reb Lazer Levine was uh, was a tremendous uh, personality, a, a a student of the Chavetz Chaim and Radin. He, in fact, was a Ben Bias. He lived uh, in the Chavetz Chaim's house because he was asked to tutor the Chavetz Chaim's son Aaron, who was the son of the Chavetz Chaim's old age and interesting uh, fellow, who, um, who was even more interesting later on in life, that's for another time. And he, he um, and in return for tutoring the Chavetz Chaim's son, he was invited to stay in the Chavetz Chaim's homes. He actually, he was a student in Radin for seven years, but for a year and a half, he actually lived in the Chavetz Chaim's home. And later on, he was seven years in Kelm, and student of the Musri Yeshiva of Kelm. He was already married there. Some of his children were born there. I remember uh, his daughter, Rebetzin Jackie Wine, of blessed memory, told me she was born in Kelm, and I was like uh, amazed by that. So her father, Reblaze Levine, was studying there at the time, and uh, um, uh, Reblaze Levine was later a rabbi in Vashki, uh, a small, tiny Lithuanian shtetl. And um, at one point, he was hired to become a rabbi across the ocean during the uh, in, in the 1930s. And he became a rabbi for one year in Erie, Pennsylvania. And the, he was only supposed to be for a one-year contract, a tryout. And he had an acquaintance of his. He asked him to replace him in Vashki. So he shouldn't be abandoning his community. And um, this fellow, uh, when he came back after a year, he said, oh, I can't vacate the position now. I'm never going to find another rabbinical position. You're so popular. You're so prestigious. You're so famous. He says to Rabbi Levine, you can find another position somewhere else. So maybe you can try to get another communal position. So this guy who took his rabbinical position is now asking him if he can keep it. Um, so Rabbi Levin, who was always the unassuming and modest and great, peaceful and calm tzaddik that he was, he, he decided to look for another position. He couldn't find one. So he decided to look for one in America. And he was able to get one in Detroit. See, he literally gives up the rabbinate, gives up this position, gives up what he had, and he moves with his entire family to Detroit. A few years later, 
the Nazis invade the Soviet Union, which Lithuania was part of it at that time, and this rabbi and his family and the entire community of Ashki is completely wiped out, and uh, this uh, decision to be mevater, to give up, and uh, not uh, insist and fight for the position, was what ultimately saved his life. Uh, when, the, when he originally had gone to the United States to take up his original position, he asked his rabbi, the Chavetz Chaim, what should be his message as a rabbi? And the Chavetz Chaim said to him, or maybe it was when he first took any rabbinical position, I'm not, sure if it was, I'm not sure if it was specifically the United States, or when he took his first rabbinical position, I'm not sure of the chronology there, um, but the Chavetz Chaim either way told him, Geiret mit Yidin, go speak to Jews. And that's a mission that he took upon himself when he became the rabbi in Detroit. He spent his entire life speaking to Jews and speaking to them in their language. He eventually would switch his language of instruction to English, even though it was a difficult language for him. He had a, a, no, a very, very long life and a very beloved figure in Detroit. He ran the Vadarabonim, he ran the Kashras. He was a very well-respected and beloved rabbi. Um, was able to relate to each and every individual for who they were. In fact, there's a, a great story that uh, one time someone was visiting um, his his house um, uh, before a relative of his was visiting his house before Sukkot, and he noticed a esrig in a box on the table, um, and uh, and it was addressed. The esrig in the box was addressed to um, Rabbi Levin had addressed it to a local conservative rabbi, and he wrote. He wrote, uh, he wrote him with very uh, honorable titles. Uh, he's a great rabbi, whatever it was. And this, uh, rel- this young relative was a bit hot-headed, and he crossed out these honorific titles. He said he's a conservative rabbi. He's, he's uh, you know, antagonistic to, uh, to uh, Orthodox Judaism, and how can we respect a conservative rabbi like that? And how can you be giving him a gift, as a, uh, an esrig as a gift, with all these titles. And, um, and Reb Lezer Levine said, said um, with one esrig and these titles, do you know how much I'm able to accomplish throughout the year by working together with him? Do you know how, much fur- you know how many projects I'm able to further, how many, how many initiatives, how many things we're able to work together for the benefit of the greater Jewish community of Detroit, because I give him an esrig once a year. And that's the type of person he was. Um, his son-in-law, Beryl Wine, told me that uh, in some, summing up Rabbi Lezer Levine's career, career he said in, in the very Rabbi Wine way, he said he saved them from the fruma and he saved them from the fraya. He said he saved them, and he kept, he kept a nice even balance, like the old school uh, Lithuanian uh, rabbis, especially those from uh, Kelm, and the Musa yeshivas were like, this uncharacteristic calm, nothing phased him. And there's definitely a lot to say about Herbalese Levine. We'll save for another time, because I want to get to the main thing I want to talk about, 26 minutes into the part one here, about the base Yehuda uh, yeshiva, which completely transformed, and essentially the what, what, anything that we have, that, that, you know, the, the building of the observant Jewish community, the Orthodox Jewish community, of Detroit is to be credited to this institution and the great personalities who are associated with it. We have the old, old original prestigious rabbi of um, of uh, of um, excuse me of, of Detroit was Rabbi Yehuda Leib Levin. Rabbi Yehuda Leib Levin was was studied in Valajin, was an old 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 Lithuanian rabbi, and he comes to uh, Detroit at the at the, t- the turn of the century. And he's um, a rabbi in Detroit from the late 1800s 
until his passing in the 1920s, about 30 years. In 1914, he opens what eventually would be named for him, Beis Yehuda is named for Rabbi Yehuda Leib Levin, um, and, he, and he, uh, he opens it as an afternoon Talmud Torah, which was common at the time. He was a, a brilliant individual, a very big leader on the uh, rabbinical scene in, in, in the United States in general. He was one of the heads of the Mizrahi, hosted the first ever uh, convention of Mizrahi in the, in the United States. A nas- uh, national meeting of Mizrahi was in Detroit at the Sharet Tzedek uh, Synagogue, which was then Orthodox, later uh, conservative. Um, so he, um, he was, he was on, you know, on the Godes Rabbanim. He was a brilliant individual, fluent in several languages. He also was an inventor of a type of calculator, in fact, and he patented it. He was <laughs> see here. You had a immigrant rabbi, Orthodox rabbi from Volozhin, who was inventing calculators. He was an expert at mathematics and uh, electronics. So a very interesting individual. So he also o- originally opened Beis Yehuda, and it was eventually named for him. Um, it grows slowly but surely, and uh, and it really gets an impetus for its growth. When in the 1940s, Reb Simcha Wasserman, Simcha Wasserman, the son of Reb Chana Wasserman Abranovich, he comes to town and he expands the Beis Yehuda to a full day day school, a real proper organized day school in its own place. It was been bouncing around to different shuls uh, until that point. Different there's many many shuls in in Detroit at the time, so using using the basements and the classrooms of different uh, shuls in in the neighborhood. And uh, at the same time that Reb Simcha arrives. There's another incredible individual who has to have a decisive impact on uh, on both the Jewish education in Detroit as well as as well as uh, the larger Jewish community. And that was Rabbi Ram Abba Friedman, who was a student of Rabbi Shaka Feivel Mendelovich in um, in uh, in Tarvidas, and who sent him out to 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 become uh, to become a teacher, to become a rabbi. Uh, they, he recalled the first Shavuos night that he and Simcha Wasserman went to shul, and they decided to stay up the entire night as is customary to study Torah. And they were the only ones there. And they, they said, well, one day Detroit is going to have full shuls on, uh, on, on, uh, on, uh, on Friday night, uh, I'm sorry, on Shavuos night uh, studying Torah. And uh, so such was the case eventually. And it was mainly due to their efforts. Simcha Wasserman left a few years later, but Ram Abba Friedman stayed there for the rest of his life. He was there for 58 years. He was the educator. He taught Torah and, you know, was involved with families. And, and he would go door to door, knocking on doors, uh, convincing parents to send uh, to the day school, to, to Beis Yehuda, um, raising generations of students. Um, there's a book about him, actually, by another very prominent, uh, not just of Detroit history, but of contemporary Detroit, Mr. Gary Torgo. Uh, so he wrote a book, Holy Warrior, about uh, about Rabbi Friedman describing his life and accomplishments, um, you know he was someone who lived uh, with the mission that Rabbi Shagafayvel Mendelovich gave him for the rest of his life, and um, and together with the other educators uh, of of, uh, of Beis Yehuda, um, was able to literally transform the town. Um, so so the uh, some of the other ones were. Ones who worked together with him, Reb Shalom Goldstein. Reb Shalom Goldstein was another prominent student of Reb Shagafayo Mendelovich, who comes to town two years later, 1946. In fact, on a visit back to um, Taravidas, to Beis Medrash Elian, so he said to Reb Shagafayo, look at this full Beis Medrash, I wish I could still be studying Torah together with these young men. Instead, I'm out, you know, I'm still young and... And then already teaching, already in the field. 
and uh, and uh, Rabbi Shaga Feivel told, I think it was to him. If not, it was one of the other students of Rabbi Shaga Feivel who was in Beis Yehuda, either him or Rabbi Friedman or 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 one of the other ones. And he said to him, uh, "I wish I could send out every single one of these students to teach Torah across the United States to open day schools." And you're doing the right thing. And he encouraged him, and this is was Rabbi Shaga Feivel's vision to send everyone out and to to be the architect of, of, of Torah in America, in each and every community. Um, so what, what happens is, is that, um, is that uh, Reb Shalom Goldstein comes, and he um, first is the Rebbe in the yeshiva for many years. Later on, they, they successfully separate the day school into a boys' and girls' school. Right? Until then it had been together, and then they you know, the, felt the community was ready for, for a, a new step. Um, and they separate the two schools, and he becomes in charge of the of the um, girls' school. He goes a teacher of the girls' school. The girls' school has a high school. Um, Rochelle Goldstein was married to the sister of Rebitzak Shiner uh, from Detroit. Um, uh, so she, so the, the two of them together, um, were instrumental in in leading the community, and uh, not only in the school itself, but also in greater impact on um, on. Uh, on the community, in, in mikvahs, and in, 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 in shuls, and in, in education, in adult education, giving shiurim and classes, uh, the two of them as as partners in both the boys' education and the girls' education, and sending them out to seminary. In fact, some of the first American uh, girls who came to seminary in Israel, um, um, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's a historical fact, came from Detroit. Um, so the 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 that, that was uh, due to Shalom Goldstein uh, and his impact. Um, of course, I'm pronouncing this uh, this yeshiva incorrectly because in the Midwest in Detroit it's pronounced yeshiva. And since I started off with talking about the correct pronunciation of cities, so if I'm talking about the the uh, schools in Detroit, it's definitely as a yeshiva, not a yeshiva. Um, Reb Joseph Elias. Um, was the principal there for several years. In 1951, he arrived at the recommendation of Reb Simcha Wasserman, and he works together with Reb Shalom Goldstein and Reb Abba Friedman, um, who, who convinced him to come. Um, and he becomes the principal of Yeshiva Beis Yehuda. Um, and, uh, and, um, and then uh, another, another individual who was the Rebbe there in the early years was Reb Shalom Shonafal Weiss before he moved to New York. Naftali um, Karlbach was there for a while before he moved to New York. It seems like everyone did served some time in Detroit before moving to New York, but many of them stayed there for life. Rabbi Shmuel Rachmiel Kaufman, who was the son of Philip and Freda Kaufman. Freda Kaufman, of course, was the daughter of of uh, Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Herman of All for the Boss fame, and this is someone who uh, suffered from polio uh, for many, many, many years, and he was a very famous Rebbe and legendary mechanic, educator, uh, for decades, in uh, again for a tremendous, amazingly long career in in Beis Yehuda for uh, for uh, um, generations of Detroit students, um, he also had once the Beis Yehuda was so successful with their elementary school, boys, girls, high school, boys, girls. Eventually, they were ready for the next step to have a real yeshiva there, and they bring the recent Alta Mirror of Lay Baxt. Who is to be the Rosh Hashiva in Detroit of a Teres Mordechai, uh, named for his father-in-law of Mordechai Rogov, who was another Velazhin uh, uh, Talmud and, and also big Rav. Uh, so named for him, Sir Leib Boxed is the Rosh Hashiva in Detroit for fifty-five years. One of the only Altamirs who become a prominent Rosh Hashiva out of town. 
uh, going out into the into the uh, here is someone who just came off the boat from Shanghai, and he goes out bravely to become in the, in the out of New York area to become a Shiva to build Torah. And uh, Rabbi Bax, who was one of the lions of the Mir in both the Mir and Shanghai, and and uh, and then he goes ahead and he's a major force and major. Uh, uh, um, um, architect of of Tyra at the senior level, at a real uh, post high school yeshiva level, for all those years as well. So this was um, a little bit about Beis Yehuda, about the early years of Detroit. Of course, in part two, we're going to delve into some of the other uh, uh, shuls, some of the um, some of the other stories of Detroit during those times. There's the Temple Bethel was an old reform temple. There's, of course, the Purple Gang, the Jewish mob in Detroit during Prohibition. Of course, we can't forget about Hank Greenberg, the baseball player from uh, Hammer and Hank. Uh, the, uh, there's also the anti-Semitism in the Detroit area of Father Coughlin during the 1930s. There's definitely a lot to talk about of pre-war um, Jewish Detroit and... and uh, um, and other prominent Detroit Jews who I'll get to in part two and part three. Um, and uh, I'd like to do so. So if you'd like to sponsor that, then please be in touch with me. So this is Yehudi Geber of Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehudi at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed. <laughs>